0: Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Galatians chapter 2. We're going to be moving around a little bit in the book of Galatians chapter 2 this morning. It would be very helpful for you to actually have your Bible open as we uh, follow the, the, the train of thought here today. We're in a series of messages that's taking us chapter by chapter through the book of Galatians. Here's the key concept today. The guilt of our sin has been nailed to the cross. Now, as you find chapter 2, let me remind you a little bit about what we saw last week. Paul is writing this letter to the Christians in Galatia. What I think is his very first letter, this is the first thing he wrote that we now retain. This was the initial book that is going to become part of the New Testament. And he writes this letter to the churches that he founded on his very first missionary journey in an area of the world we call Central and Southern Turkey. He's now returned to his sending church, that's Antioch in Syria, and he writes the letter because as he's back from this trip, he he is hearing rumors that after he left, some other teachers have arrived and are adding to his message. And what they're saying is this, in addition to faith in the work of Jesus Christ, you need to follow the Jewish law in order to be truly saved. So what's happening is seeds of doubt are being sown among these brand new Christians, most of them from Gentile backgrounds. And you can imagine they're thinking, you know, these teachers seem so certain. They seem so sure, so learned. They know so much more about all this than I do. Maybe I don't have all I need to be right with God. And so in the chapter we look at today, we hear Paul lay it out very plainly justification before God that is being declared righteous in God's sight comes only through faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross nothing else needs to be added he's saying this the grace you found in Jesus is way better than the rules they're putting over you don't go backwards move forward now as I was kind of toying with the this idea of Paul saying, don't go backwards, an image came came into my mind. And I want to show you on the screen, the image. That image came into my mind. <laughs> of course, you all recognize that, right? Typewriter. Now, there was a time when this was the pinnacle of office technology. This is what every office used. This is what all the students worked with. This was it. And as you look at it, you know that, there's a, that today's computer uh, owes a lot to this typewriter. The keyboard is there. The idea of typing something out rather than writing it out longhand. This is the machine that I use to write all my college papers and all my seminary papers. And if you made a mistake, you had to take out a little bottle of White Out. Do you remember Out? And if you took it out too much, you started getting a little woozy with whiteout, right? And you had to apply it to the paper. Or maybe you had to use erasable paper. There are people in this room right now who have no idea what erasable paper is. And the reason is because the era of the typewriter is over. You can get rid of that picture now. Thank you. The era of the typewriter is over. You see, this, this technology was surpassed. By the computer and no one in any office around the world would want to go back to the manual typewriter. When the computer age arrived, we put away the manual typewriter because it belonged to the former era. Similarly, the Lord Jesus has surpassed the law. Everything that the law hoped for and pointed towards is found in Jesus Christ. The Judaizers are, in a sense, calling the Galatians, go back to the typewriter age, the former era, and then you can catch up. And Paul is saying, no, don't do it. Don't do it. Go to verse 16 in chapter 2. He says, know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, so that we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Now, you could say that that verse is a summary of this entire letter. Don't think you had to have to add the law to your faith. You have been saved by God's grace through faith. But I want to point out one word in that verse. You look at verse 16 in your Bible. The one word I want to point out is the word justification. That's the first time that Paul writes this word. And it's going to become the centerpiece of Paul's theology. And Paul's theology becomes the core of Christian theology over the history of the church. And it starts with justification. And justification is a legal term. It is the opposite of condemnation. Condemnation declares you guilty, but justification declares you innocent, not guilty. And that's what we receive by God's grace when we turn to Jesus in faith. Not just forgiveness, we get forgiveness but we get more. Not just pardon, we get pardon, but we get more. We get justification. It means because of what Jesus has done, the Father sees us through the filter of Jesus Christ, and he declares us innocent on all charges. Justification means when God looks at those who are in the faith, who have humbled themselves before, themselves before Jesus, he sees Christ's righteousness in us. He doesn't see our sin anymore. In Galatians 2, verse 19, look there. He says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That first sentence is funny sounding. Through the law I died to the law. What does that mean? It means this, it means the law functioned in my life exactly as it was meant to function. It did exactly what it was meant to do. It brought me to an awareness of my condemnation. It brought me to awareness of my own failure and my need for grace. It brought me to the point where I understood I have to die to the law to get what God wants to give me. I realize that my religious achievements do not distinguish me. My reputation does nothing for me. My dedication to religious activity, it's not helping me. All that stuff that I thought was saving me actually led me to two conclusions, despair and condemnation. That's what legalism brings you to, despair and condemnation. Despair because in my heart of hearts I knew I wasn't keeping the law. I wasn't perfectly keeping the law, so I pretended that I was doing okay. And the motto of my life became, fake it till you make it. And that's the motto of every legalist's life. Fake it till you make it, but guess what? You'll never make it that way. And so there's a despair that comes over the person trying to just earn their way to heaven, which brings about eventually the conclusion of condemnation. That's the end of the road. But... When I found simple faith in Jesus, I found the antidote both to despair and condemnation. Why? Because the guilt of my sin has been nailed to the cross. And Christ now lives in me. He's the one who's perfectly righteous. He frees me from that condemnation. He frees me from that despair. I can hear Paul kind of shouting with the hymn writer, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. In 2.20 he says, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The identity of Christ has become my identity. What is true about Christ is now true about me. It has been transferred to me. When the Father looks at me, he sees his Son, and that is the result of grace. Now, Paul is making all of these theological points, which, by the way, he will expand and enlarge on in the book of Romans when he writes that a few years later. But he does all of that after having defended himself personally in the beginning of the chapter. You see, part of, of, the, of the Judaizers discrediting Paul's message was working to discredit him. So in the early verses of chapter 2, he's given us a bit of his biography. Let's back up a little bit. Chapter 2, verse 1. He says this, Fourteen years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas, I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. Now, Paul here is seeking to prove that he's in sync with the leaders of the church. Because the criticism that the Judaizers are beginning to say about him is, you know, he's not really authorized by the Jerusalem leaders. He's kind of off on his own, kind of gone rogue with this message. And Paul is saying, no, let me tell you about a time that I went to the leaders. He says, I visited them 14 years after something What's that something? I believe that something is his encounter with Jesus along the Damascus Road. Fourteen years after that, he comes to the leaders of the church. That would place this visit to the leaders of the church just prior to his first missionary journey. And he goes down to Jerusalem from Antioch in Syria uh, with Barnabas, who was his friend and soon traveling companion from the church in Antioch, and with a Gentile named Titus. This man, Titus, will soon become a pastor on the island of Crete and he will receive the letter that's in your Bible with his name on it, from Paul to Titus. And they come down together and they meet with the leaders of the, the Jerusalem church. So there's a Christian, uh, a converted Christian Jew and a converted Christian Gentile with uh, Paul and he meets with Peter and John and James, the half-brother of Jesus. We think that this is the visit that Paul uh, that uh, Luke records in Acts chapter 11 you see what's happening is Paul has proceeds from an offering that he's taken in Antioch and he's delivering those proceeds to Jerusalem because a famine has breaking, uh, broken out in Jerusalem and so they're helping the believers there in Jerusalem and he takes this opportunity uh, to ask a basic question and this basic question is the backdrop for all of his ministry to the Gentiles and it is do Gentiles need to follow the law of the Jews and the result of that discussion is no the Gentiles do not need to follow the law circumcision and the rituals are not required he makes a point to say in in verse verse 3 even Titus the Gentile standing right in front of them he did not need to be circumcised now in this meeting nothing is put in writing But this will be the issue again in Acts chapter 15 when a council is convened to make an official judgment. You see, this kind of pushback, pushing legalism into the gospel doesn't go away easy. But you do not need to be a Jew in order to be a follower of Jesus. And it's not, the message is not just that Gentiles are exempt from the law, but the Jews still have to follow. No, the message is the era of the law is over. And when the era of the law is over, the divisions between Jew and Gentile have gone away and we are one in the body of Christ. That's the message. And in order to accentuate that message and point it out even more so, Paul uh, remembers an incident in which he had to even rebuke the apostle Peter. Let's look at it in verse 11 of chapter 2. He said, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined uh, with him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. See, here's what happened. Paul went back to to Antioch from Jerusalem. He told about the meeting that he had with the church leaders and how the meeting went very, very well. And eventually, Peter also came to the church in Antioch, which was a mixed congregation of converted Jews and converted Gentiles. And while he's there, he doesn't worry about the kosher laws. Doesn't worry about that anymore because unity is happening. The division is gone. But when some of the... Whoever representatives from the Jerusalem church arrive, he backslides away from his open-mindedness because of social pressure, because of wanting to look good. And Paul sees that this could do something tragic to, the, to, the, to this fledgling church, and that is it could cause the Gentiles to think that they were second-class members of the kingdom of God. He foresaw a possible train of thought that went something like this. You know, Peter is ashamed of us before his Jewish friends. We must be less than in the church. And Paul's not going to put up with that. Peter knew better than to do this. In verse 13, he calls him out for hypocrisy. His hypocrisy influenced others. Now, it's important that we don't use the word hypocrisy or hypocrite in the wrong way. And I fear that oftentimes when I hear it being used, it's used in the wrong way. It's common to think that a hypocrite is somebody who fails to live up to their ideals. So that goes something like this, oh, look at her. She reads her Bible, she goes to church, but you know what? She has a potty mouth. Hypocrite. No, that's not hypocrisy. That's humanity. No one lives perfectly up to our highest ideals. Hypocrisy is different. Hypocrisy, the word itself, is derived from a Greek word that's meant stage actor. And uh, hypocrisy is pretending to be a character, pretending to be something that you fundamentally are not. It is purposeful. It is intentional. It is a concealment of your true character under a guise or under a mask. It implies that you are someone different from the person that uh, that you really are. So when you mask your true beliefs, when you play a role and hide your convictions, that is when you're a hypocrite. Living one way in one situation, another way in another situation, playing a role, that's hypocrisy. Here's a good example of hypocrisy. In the running of the 84th Boston Marathon, a runner came from obscurity to win the female category of the race. The runner's name was Rosie Ruiz. She had the laurel wreath placed on her head. She received the cheers of the crowds. But, but the remarkable thing was, and the thing that the press really picked up on, she declared that this was her first ever marathon. It was unbelievable. The first ever time she a, ran a marathon, she won the Boston Marathon. It was all over the news. Fantastic achievement. But right away, there were questions. Nobody remembered seeing Rosie Ruiz at the start. Nobody remembered seeing Rosie Ruiz along the way and the various checkpoints that they go through. And people noticed, no offense to Rosie Ruiz, but even though she had a runner's outfit, she didn't have a runner's body. And soon, They investigated and The truth came out that she had sneaked into the course in the last mile and sprinted to the end. And nobody noticed. But all throughout all the celebration, she was uh, playing a role. That's hypocrisy. And Peter was playing a role. He knew better. But in front of the uptight nitpickers who came from Jerusalem, he wanted to be thought of as a swell guy fitting into their circles. And so Paul establishes something here. Number one, he's not above calling people out who water down the truth. And this sets him up to refute the way the false teachers are criticizing him in a second way. And that is, they're saying, Paul's message of grace is soft on sin. He's saying this because... He wants to be soft on sin. That was the accusation. And here's Paul's response to that accusation. Go to verse 17. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. For for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Now, the sentence structure there is a little bit convoluted. But here's the point. If you say that the gospel of grace is soft on sin, then you're saying Jesus himself is soft on sin. Because this was his teaching. And he knows that we're not perfect. He doesn't expect perfection. He expects that we call out for forgiveness. And the law is designed to bring us to the point where we are aware of our failure where we sense our need for forgiveness, mercy, and justification. That's what the law was designed to do. The way to live for God and to defeat sin in your life is not all about greater human human effort. It's about being saturated by God and His grace and mercy. So his bottom line is this. If you live by the law, you can't live for God. If you live by set of rules and regulations, all bound up in legalism and just have as your motto, fake it till you make it, you can't live for God. Fall upon God's mercy and grace, and He will change you. Now, Ray Ortland, writing about this passage, I thought uh, wrote a, uh, an interesting illustration. He used the illustration of marriage, and he said it this way. We were once married to Mr. Law. He was a good man in his way. But he came home every evening and he asked, So how was your day? And what he meant was, Did you complete what I asked you to do? Did you make the kids behave? Did you waste any time? Did you cross everything off of your to do list? And as hard as we tried, we couldn't be perfect. And since we couldn't be perfect, we couldn't satisfy him. All that Mr. Law did was point out our failings. And the worst of it was, he was always right. And the message was always the same. Do the do better tomorrow. But eventually, Mr. Law died. And we remarried to Mr. Grace. His first name is Jesus. He comes home every evening. And even if the house is a mess and the kids are naughty, he sweeps us up into his arms and he says, I love you. I chose you. I died for you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Being married to Mr. Grace is changing us in ways that Mr. Law never could. He's changing us for the better deep within our our hearts and it shows in the way that we live. You see, man-made religion will always be about the idea, I must accomplish the task, I must work the ritual, I must satisfy the requirements. And Paul says, listen, welcome to God's grace. God tells you by His grace that the work is done. He invites you to turn to Him, and He will save you by His grace. He will sweep you up into His arms. He'll keep you by His power, and that is all you will ever need. Why? Because the guilt of your sin has been nailed to the cross. And in that, we rejoice. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You. Forgive us for the times that we look to human achievement, that we look to human effort, to think somehow either we're getting in or we're getting ahead. Remind us, Lord, it's all about what you have done, about mercy and grace bestowed on us. Lord, we turn to you humbly and we say thank you. Go with us in the struggles that we face ahead, but keep us always mindful that you sweep us in your arms. You tell of your love and you go step by step along the way, hand in hand with us. Thank you, Lord. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.